Our sermon passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you'll turn there with me, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find it in your pew Bible on page 222, 222. Uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. We're talking about these days Saul, and today's kind of our last time looking at what exactly led to Saul's downfall. Now, clearly, the easy answer is he doesn't believe in God and he sins. That, that's the obvious answer. But we've been seeing the particular ways that Saul sinned and the particular instances in which Saul failed to trust God. And this morning we're going to see yet another one. And it's the most blatant of all and the most obvious of all that's going to give us an opportunity to talk about obedience and the importance of it. I'll begin reading at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, king, and the best of all that was good, of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are... Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, 
and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Have you ever overcomplicated something ever in your life? Something that should have been easy and simple, and you made it hard. I remember as a kid, and kids in here, you might identify with this, taking tests in school. I did this a lot, especially with multiple choice. I hated multiple choice because it made me overthink it. Uh, because there was always two or three answers that seemed they, like they could be right. And two or at least one that seemed like they were definitely wrong and that gave you a dilemma and so I would often think too deeply about the question I would go back and review it and I would end up getting the wrong answer because I overthought it and when I got the test back I saw the obvious the obvious that I had missed before you see when you overcomplicate something it's because you look at things you're not supposed to be looking at which makes you miss the things that ought not to be missed. That is Saul in this scene. 
Saul's commission from God as king of Israel is relatively simple when you boil it down. And yet Saul is overcomplicating it. He's overcomplicating it in many ways, which is taking his eyes off the main thing and causing him to choose to disobey God because he has made it more complex than it has to be. Verse 22, if you look down at that, is perhaps the most famous verse in all of 1 Samuel, really, one of the most famous at least, where Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Uh, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. Don't overcomplicate it. Here's the simple reality. God delights in the obedience of his people more than anything they can give him. More than anything you can give God, simple obedience to his clear commands is the thing he delights in most. And yet here we are often, aren't we, overcomplicating our relationship with God, making us look at things we ought not to be looking at, getting distracted, rather than focusing on simple obedience. Please look with me at your bulletin. There are three things about obedience that we see from the story. First of all, in verses 1 to 9, we see the prescription of obedience. Then secondly, in verses 10 through 23, we see the priority of obedience that that God places on it. And then lastly, we see the path of obedience in verses 24 to 35. We'll try to make as quick a work of a long passage as we can this morning. Uh, So first of all, the prescription of obedience. There in verses 1 to 9, Saul is given the clearest instructions. There's nothing really ambiguous about what God tells Saul to do. And he even starts in verse 1 by telling him the reason why he ought to do it. Look look down again at verse 1 because there's a lot of truth packed up into that verse. It says, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to, to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now notice how much in that line is about God versus how much is about Saul or Samuel or anybody else. It's all about God, right? God sent me, Samuel, to you, Saul, to anoint you. God's anointing you as well as sending me in order for you to be king over my, God's, people. Saul, it is not about you. And it's not about me either. And it's not ultimately even about the people of Israel. What's going on here in this scene is about the Lord. About God's holy will, both his justice, which is going to be displayed on the Amalekites, and his mercy, which he was wanting to display on the Israelites. And Saul was called to be God's representative in that because God is the one who set him up in the first place. And so Samuel says in verse 1, because the Lord did this, now therefore, look at it, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Because God has set you in place and given you your uh, responsibilities as king and has sustained you in your life, Saul, listen to what God says. Now we understand this principle. Authority comes from authorship, right? 
If you look at the word authority, at the beginning of that word is the word author. When an author writes a book, she's in charge of the book. She can change whatever she wants to change in the book. She can publish it or not. She can do whatever she wants with it because she is the author of the book. Well, the Lord is here, and in many places in the Bible, establishing himself as the author of all human life. Nobody lives apart from God's authorship. Therefore, God has an authority that is deeper, wider, higher than anyone else. Therefore, we should listen to what God has to say more than we listen to any other voice. Think about it. Uh, Even in our human relationships, we recognize this. Uh, Parents in the room, do you expect your children to obey you? I expected a more hearty yes. To be honest, I... Thank you, thank you. Yes. Now, I didn't ask if they obey you, right? I said, do you expect them? Do you expect them? Now, why do you expect them to obey you? What gives you the right? Yeah, I said so. That's a parent's favorite, right? Because I said so. And then sometimes after that, we might say something along these lines. I brought you into this world. And I can take you out. Right? We, we recognize parental authority over children, and that's a good thing, but nobody, I don't think, would dispute that. Kids apart from parents, is that good? A kid just off on his own that, or her own, is that good? Terrible. We recognize parents have a rightful and good authority over children because parents are the source, at least humanly speaking, of their life. And they're the ongoing sustainer of that life. They're the author in some way, and so they have authority. Same thing is true at your work. If you go out to represent your company, you've got the company shirt on. Should you do things that are against the company while you're on, on duty? I mean, again, I'm not saying do you. I'm saying should you. No. Why? Well, you're wearing their shirt and they're paying you to be there. When you're off duty, okay, there's some leeway. But when you're on duty, they're paying you for that time. It belongs to them and they have a will they're trying to carry out. And you're responsible to listen to what it is. Everybody understands this. Well, think about it. If God is the great author of all, That means what he says must be heard. It is fitting. That's a great word that I like to think about here. It's fitting for us. It just fits for us as God's creatures to hear his voice and to respond to it with obedience. That's why God delights in it. God delights in obedience because he has called us, he has given us life, he has sustained us, and it fits beautifully with our position as creature to listen to our creator. And yet, much like Saul, we don't do so. Saul decided in this story, he had an idea that was better than God's idea, and he was going to go with his idea rather than God's idea. Do you ever do that? I want to tell you this morning, we can beat up on Saul all day long, but we are all Saul. Okay, we hear something that God tells us and we think, yeah, that sounds nice in a perfect world, but you know, I've got this and that to do and I, this is a better idea. It's better for me. I'll get to that later when I'm old or whatever, whatever excuse we come up with. It's the same thing Saul did. 
It's failing to recognize who our author is by failing to acknowledge his authority. Now, somebody might say, well, hold on now, Stan. What God told Saul to do is terrible. No wonder he didn't listen. And yes, of course, what God told Saul to do is terrible. Let's just say that. Not because it was unjust, but because justice sometimes is terrible in the sense of terrifying. Um, The Amalekites were a people group that were always harassing Israel. In fact, from the day they came up out of Egypt, the Amalekites unprovoked attacked Israel and killed a bunch of people. God overcame them, but they remained always there to pester and to inflict violence on Israel. And so God is now saying, which by the way, 500 years before this, God had said to Moses, one day I'm going to take Amalek out completely. Their memory is going to be wiped away because they have not listened to me. I'm their author. Well, notice Saul, the king of Israel, is, is called to be God's hammer. And that is, by the way, a role that we still recognize in nations today. Our nation is not Israel in the Old Testament. We don't have the call to do holy war like Israel did in that particular time. But it is still true that sometimes war, as awful as it is, is what needs to happen. Do you agree? I know it's a little controversial, but sometimes war is necessary. Sometimes, also controversial, but I think very important, sometimes capital punishment is necessary. And yes, it's awful. Who wants to get that commission to be the capital punisher? And yet, it's necessary in the cause of justice. And so when God called Israel to do this, really what he was saying is, look, one day I'm going to judge everybody anyway. And everybody who does not listen to me and who doesn't repent of that not listening is going to be completely destroyed. That, that is, by the way, that is true. I hope you hear this from Scripture. God will one day come, and one day everybody who persists in their wickedness and evil apart from Jesus Christ will be utterly destroyed like Amalek. I can't sugar that up. We, you will be hacked to pieces. Before the presence of God. Without Christ. That's awful. But it's reality. Because of how much we have offended. Our great and holy maker. Saul was to be God's instrument. He refused. Not because he said. Oh come on God. You want me to kill the children? Really? I'll do everything but kill the children. Had he said that, he may have been excused for his sensitivity. Instead, what did Saul do? He had no problem killing the children. He had no problem, it says, killing all the people and the animals that he considered despised and worthless. That's gross. Instead, what he did is he spared his buddy Agag, fellow king, his peer, And he saved the best of the animals, supposedly to sacrifice them to the Lord, but we know what's up. You hear it? Do not give Saul a pass, because in our modern world we get squeamish over war and over justice and over capital punishment. These things are a reality, and they're sometimes necessary, and God holds the key to every life anyway, because he made it. His justice should prevail. Saul should have done what the Lord told him to do. 
He did not get out of it because he was sensitive, but because he was insensitive to the rights of God. Now think about yourself this morning. Do not, don't we have such a terrible problem with authority in our society today? We don't like it. I mean, we talked about work a minute ago. Imagine you got called into your boss's office and he said, you know what? Or she said, you know what's wrong with you? You don't obey me enough. Get out there and obey me. How would you feel? Right? No one would like it. I don't think anybody would like it. In fact, most of us would probably consider telling him where the job can go, right? Because we don't like that kind of language. I mean, after all, obey is a four-letter word. It just so happens. And we tend to treat it that way. And yet, think about this for a second. If there is no obedience, there is no authority. And if there is no authority, there is no author. And if there is no author, there is no story. Now, that might be what you want to believe. But I don't think it is. I mean, think about it. One philosopher in history who actually believed this, there is no God, there's no authority, there's no, everything's just random. He said this, every human is just thrown into the world. Just random. What happens in your life, random. What you do, random. And then you die. I don't think you want to believe that. In fact, I don't think deep down you do believe that. Because all of us as humans long for meaning. We long for purpose. We long for a plot in our lives well a plot only comes from an author and an author comes with authority and authority means obedience so there you have it how well how good are you at thinking about yourself as a person under authority Saul was terrible well someone might say well he's the king yeah but guess what even the king is under God amen and just, this is a sidebar, but as a parent, if you want your kids to learn how to obey and you want to be a good leader in the home, you know a great way to do that? Learn how to listen yourself to God. Right? You cannot lead unless you learn how to follow. You just can't do it. If, you, if you're a boss at work or whatever you, you, positions you have, if you want the people under you to learn how to submit better, how about you learn how to submit to the Lord? Work on you and your relationship with God. Saul could have done that. He could have been a great king had he learned that God was the king over the kings. All right, that's the first thing. God prescribes obedience because it's fitting. But secondly, we're going to see God's priority of obedience. He not only prescribes it and makes it a commandment, but he loves it. I mean, let's talk this way. God gets excited about the obedience of his people. He delights in it. He loves it. I mean, think about you as a parent watching your children do nice things for other people or do nice things for you. How does that make you feel? Isn't that just such a warm and I mean, there's a pride that comes in and just a joy to see your kids listening to your instruction and becoming great. Now magnify that many times over. And that's how God looks at us. 
when we obey. He delights in it. He does not simply want us to merely do our duty and carry out our responsibility, but he wants us to do our duty in love for him because, as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The reverse is also true. If you don't love God, you won't keep his commandments. Whether we obey or not always shows, always shows how much we love the Lord truly in our hearts. Isn't that right? Think about it. God loves willing obedience. Parents, how many of you would like to receive a Mother's Day card or a Father's Day card that you opened and it said, just doing my duty. (laughs) Hope you have a good day, your dutiful offspring. (laughs) That sound good? Just give you the warm fuzzies, right? No. Uh, How many of you would like your spouse on your anniversary? I had to do it. Love your spouse. How would that go over? Do you you think God delights in that then? And yet, don't we treat the Lord that way? Oh, Lord, I'll I'll toe the line because, yep, don't want to fall on your bad side. What I have to do. Rather than, oh, Lord, my God, I love you. Because you gave me life because you love me. And so, Lord, tell me what to do and I'll do it. It might be hard. I might not like it at first, but Lord, help me, and I'll, and I'll try to walk on the path that you've set out before me because I love you. Now, notice how Saul responds. He shows that he does not love God. That's at the root of his disobedience. When Samuel comes, uh, this is one of my favorite things in the whole passage. Uh, when Samuel walks up uh, in verse 13, Saul said to Samuel, Blessed are you, Samuel, of the Lord. I have done what God told me to do. I did it. Can you imagine the scene? Samuel walks up and here's Saul. I did it. Yes. Now, I've thought about this. Do you think Saul actually believed he did it? Or is he being deceptive? I, I can't tell because I know with me, I can often think I'm doing what God wants me to do because I've convinced myself of it but I'm not because I'm not paying attention to what he actually said. I'm just, aren't we so good at rationalizing everything? I mean, we got reasons for, for everything we do. And we think, everybody thinks their own reasons are great. Um, next time we have a reason that we think is great, we ought to try to hear our own reasons as if someone else is giving that reason to us. Right? That's a good exercise. What if your kid came to you with that reason? that you're bringing to God? Would you accept it? That's another story. Saul here is giving reasons. He says, look, I did what God told me to do. I I killed everybody except the king, and I brought him in, and that's because that's what I got to do as a king, you know. There's a king's club out there that has king rules, and we're not to kill each other, and so I, I spared him and honor code. And, you know, these, the nice sheep, the nice calves, I mean, what a waste just to kill them. So I brought them here so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. And besides, it wasn't I who did it anyway. It was the people's idea. And I was too afraid of them to contradict them. And so I went along with what they wanted to do. I mean, what a rationalizer Saul is. And yet the text tells on him. Because in verse 
9, it tells us exactly why Saul did what he did. It says, <clears throat> They spared the best of all the sheep, etc., and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. What does that mean, would not? Didn't it say they did not? It said they would not, which means what? They chose not to. They, they didn't want to. Therefore, they didn't. And, and there it is, right? I mean, every time we sin, th by the way, not, not to get too biographical, but autobiographical. But in my own life, when I was younger, this is one of the things God used to really bring me to himself. Is I came to the realization as a teenager, I sin because I want to sin. I know that, that doesn't sound very, you know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but you know what I mean. It, God began to break into me, uh, break through my rationalizations. And he showed me, no, when you sin, don't start excusing it. Don't start giving all the reasons. Just own up. You didn't want to do what God told you to do. That, that's all it is. It's not that hard. You didn't want to do it. Why? Because you loved something else, probably yourself, more than you loved God. At least in that moment. Let me give you a test case. When you lie, every time you lie, why are you lying? Because probably you're trying to save your skin. And you obviously value saving your own skin more than you value what God told you to do, which is to tell the truth. You say, that's harsh. Well, it's real. I mean, there's no secret about it. After Saul did what he did and disobeyed God, what does it say he went to do? This tells you so much. The text tells on him. It tells you in verse 12, Saul set up a monument for himself. I mean, think about it, people. <laughs> he has just disobeyed God with a high hand rationalizing it as he goes. And then he's so proud of himself for what he did that he built a statue of himself to commemorate his crafty disobedience. Now, have you ever set up a monument for yourself? I hope not literally, because that, yeah, that's another conversation we'll deal with. Yeah, you can come see me if you have, and we'll talk about it. That, yeah, that's a deep level of, of, of selfishness there, but, but all of us have set up monuments for ourselves in our hearts. In fact, that's what every sin is. Throwing up the statue of Stan. Because I think what Stan needs, in this situation at least, is better than what God requires. That's why Samuel says, the kicker there in verse 22, don't you know, Saul, that God has a great delight in obedience? He delights more that you obey him than that you give him anything. I mean, you can give him all the animals in the world. You could give him all your money today. You could empty your bank account and give it to God. And yet God would not be more pleased with that than just simply obeying what he has told you to do in his word. In fact, disobedience is repulsive to God. 
It tells you there that rebellion in verse 23 is as the sin of divination, or as the King James says, as the sin of witchcraft. To rebel against God is the same thing as playing around with the devil, which is what divination and witchcraft are. Presumption, or stubbornness, is as the sin of idolatry. When I'm stubborn, can you be stubborn? When we're stubborn, it's as if we are putting up a monument to ourselves in our hearts. You might as well do it in reality and bow down to it while you're at it. Because that's what you're doing. Wow. Well, why does God delight in obedience so much? Because obedience shows that the self has been dethroned and that God has been throned in the heart and that we love the Lord. When I'm choosing to pay a cost by not lying so that I can tell the truth because that's what God delights in, I'm showing I love God more than my own skin. And that's a beautiful thing in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, that's the way our whole relationship with God is supposed to be. God in, his, in the Bible gives a bunch of promises, and all the promises are just all the ways that God promises to bless us. He says, I'm going to give you everything that I have. All of it is yours. I am the Lord God. Everything is going to be given to you, my people. But then the commandments of God, which are all throughout the Bible, are God saying, and here is how I want you to give your whole self back to me. You receive from me my all in the promises by faith so that then you can turn back in love your obedience to me. What a beautiful relationship we were made for with God. And yet, we are all saw willing to trade in the beauty of that relationship for our own schemes and strategies to exalt ourselves. How sad. Saul had the opportunity here to hear what he had done from Samuel and to say to God, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I know I've sinned against you. Lord, I am not a good king. I need to be made a better king. Lord, forgive me. Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And I want you to notice here in our third point, he doesn't do any of that. Let's look at it. The path of obedience is true repentance, born of grace. And yet Saul refuses to receive God's grace, and so his repentance, so-called, is fake. Now look at it with me. Somebody might say, well, hold on, it doesn't seem fake. I mean, look at verse 24. Saul says, I have sinned. That seems real. Okay, I've sinned, for I've transgressed. The commandments of the Lord. All right, so far, so good. Well, then he gets weak by saying, I did it because I feared the people and I obeyed them. It was the people, right, that made me do it. So that's weak. But then he turns around and gets strong again. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So far, so good. But the moment Samuel says, no, I will not go with you, God has rejected you from being king, we're not going to have a big old nationwide worship service where you can bow before God in front of everybody. We're not doing it. Saul, if you want to repent, you need to do it privately like everybody else. How does Saul respond to that? 
he is not interested. He grabs Samuel's robe. It tears. Samuel again says, I'm not going with you. And Saul, in some of the saddest words in the Bible, in verse 30, says, I have sinned, yet, what is he interested in? Honor me before the elders of, notice, my people and before Israel. Return with me so that I can bow before the Lord. Read so that everybody can see me bowing before the Lord and everybody kind of excuse what I did. Fake repentance is this. When you repent for the same reason that you sinned before, it ain't repentance. I mean, catch this. Saul is repenting for the exact same reason that he sinned in the first place, which was wanting to exalt himself and look awesome and do awesome things in his own eyes and in the eyes of people. When he realized his first strategy was not very convenient and it caused problems for him, he decided to try to pursue it in another way, which was to have a worship service where he bowed down and made this big, you know, this big ado. There goes the king. Look at how spiritual he is. Wow, King Saul. He both kicks butt and is spiritual. That's what he wanted people to see. His sin has not changed. His heart has not changed. His outward actions are the only thing that has changed, and that just a little bit. Because it doesn't take a lot to say, yeah, I was wrong. Okay. Parents, have you ever got that kind of apology from your kids? Apologize to your sister. Do it now. Apologize to your sister. I'm sorry. Have you ever heard that? Is that real? Ah, Of course not. It's just a way of outwardly making amends. But you clearly can see the heart. The same thing that made him hit his sister, that same anger, is the same anger that came out when he said, I'm sorry. And so real repentance is the way to obedience, not fake repentance. Because real repentance does this. It actually changes what's in the heart. Saul, if his heart actually changed, would have been okay with it. He would have said, all right, Samuel, you don't want to do a big worship service? Cool. Nobody else gets a worship service every time they repent. I'll just be like everybody else. I'll go home, I'll close the door, and I'll get on my face, and I'll ask God to forgive me. That's what David did. Read Psalm 51. That's real repentance. When nobody sees, because your heart has actually changed before the Lord. Now, how does that happen? It's the million-dollar question. How does a sinner like me come, go from setting up monuments to myself to really loving the Lord God and wanting to obey Him by repenting of all my sins every day? How do, how do I do that? Simple answer. You have to understand the mystery of God's grace to sinners. Somebody... <clears throat> said it this way in verses 24 to 35 there are two people repenting and both of them are repenting in an odd way Saul's repenting in an odd way because it's fake 
Now, you tell me, who is the other person in those verses who repents? God. And there's something odd about that. In fact, Samuel points it out. In, if you'll look at uh, verse 29, Samuel points out what's odd. The Lord regretted or repented that he made Saul king. The Lord regretted or repented that he made Saul king. It says that twice. But then in that verse it says, The glory of Israel will not regret will not repent, cannot repent, because he's not a man. And everybody said, what? You know? How can God regret and then not regret? How can the God who cannot regret, regret? And here's the mystery of grace. Uh, Think about the sun, okay? Every day we say, the sun rose and the sun set. And we look at it, and the sun is moving across the sky. And boy, does the sun look fast. It's changing quick. And all throughout the year, it gets at different angles. It's really cool to watch. Is the sun really moving? No. Who's moving? We are. Which makes it appear, from our perspective, that the sun's doing the moving and we're staying still. Samuel wants Saul to know this. Hey, God is rejecting you as king, but make no mistake about it. It is not God that has changed. God does not change. And here's great hope, isn't it? God never changes. God's character is always the same yesterday, today, forever. God never goes back on any plan that he's ever made. And yet, from our perspective, when we turn away from God, it appears that he turns away from us. But really, it's us who've changed. And now, because we've turned away from God, we are experiencing another side of God, his wrath and his judgment, that we before did not experience. The same thing is true the other way, and here's the glory of grace. A sinner who is in their sin, if through the cross of Jesus Christ, will turn from their sin and turn towards God's mercy, will also experience an apparent change in God. It's not a real change, because God never changes. But from our perspective, it looks like God was angry with me, and now he loves me. God was going to send me to hell, and I deserved it. And now God is going to welcome me into the kingdom of heaven forever. God held my sins against me and pressed me with guilt. But now God has given me freedom, forgiveness, and cleansing. Listen, don't think for a moment it's God who's done the changing. He does not change. The glory of Israel is always the same. But you, by his grace, have changed. And so here is the way that obedience works. Do you want to become an obedient person with the Lord? Here's how it works. Look at the cross where you see the unchanging God apparently as a human being, undergoing change. He's being killed. God's everlasting hatred of sin is being displayed. And also God's everlasting love for sinners like us is being displayed. And you're being given two options. Right? Am I going to persist in my sin and experience the cross for myself in hell? Am I going to get the ban of the Amalekites one day? Or, by God's grace, am I going to turn 
and accept the grace of God offered to me in the gospel through Jesus and experience God's everlasting love. It's that person, that second person, who turns and sees Jesus and embraces him that begins to obey God truly. It's not merely a duty anymore, although it is a duty. It's a duty that has become a delight because when I was low, when I was rebellious, when I was like uh, practicing divination and practicing idolatry, setting up monuments for myself, God set up a monument for me by raising up his son to die for me on the cross. Now, if that kind of love is given to me, how can I withhold my love from him? Now, Lord, tell me what you want me to do. Real obedience flows from real repentance, but you have to beware of the fake imitations. Only the cross can change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. We can dress things up and church them up on the outside. Christ changes the heart. Turn to him every day of your life to turn from your sin, to be ready and willing to obey what God tells you to do. We all stumble in many ways, and you will continue to stumble in many ways. But the whole trajectory of your life could actually change today if you'll turn towards Jesus. Amen?